The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning. It's uh, really good to be here. Thank you so much for uh, having me back. I never presume upon a repeat invitation after I've spoken anywhere. Uh, in fact, sometimes the opposite happens. So um, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be back amongst you and, and to have uh, a friendly uh, crowd and uh, look out at uh, friendly faces. So often much of my work is looking out at people who appear to want to have my head on a platter uh, as opposed to uh, uh, listen to what um, is being said. So thank you for being here this morning. I thought what we could do in, in this slightly more relaxed and uh, uh, intimate environment that we have here uh, is to um, have something of this uh, of the lecture to start with and then have a period of questions and discussion afterwards. And uh, Ted tells me that you're really happy to be here most of the day. So it'll be a long lecture and, uh, and, and we can, you know, do, do the Q&A as we as we see fit. So I will try and, and, and keep myself inside of an hour here. But uh, <clears throat> the subject, the revelation of God uh, in creation, uh, is the title that I've given to what I want to say today. And uh, in order to begin, I, I do want to read from, from Scripture and, and uh, read, first of all, from the Psalms, Psalm 19. These will be verses that are very familiar to you. And then from Romans 1, Uh, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 7. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then the Apostle Paul, uh, in words that are reminiscent of uh, Psalm, the message of Psalm 19 in Romans chapter 1, I just want to read verses 18 through 25. St. Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That word excuse there, by the way, in the Greek, apologia, is the word from which we get apologetics. There is no defense, Paul is saying. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to their uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves 
who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We get something there of the context, almost a a summary of the uh, Bible's teaching about the significance of God's revelation, his self-revelation in creation. Isaac Newton, who I presume needs no introduction, said, a heavenly master governs all the world as sovereign of the universe. We are astonished at him by reason of his perfection. We honor him and fall down before him because of his unlimited power. From blind physical necessity, which is always and everywhere the same, no variety adhering to time and place could evolve. And all variety of created objects which represent order and life in the universe could happen only by the willful reasoning of its original creator, whom I call Lord and God. Now, the book of Genesis uh, gives us uh, an unparalleled account of creation, where the absolute God of Scripture calls all things into existence. And believe it or not, this immediately distinguishes the Judeo-Christian worldview from all other perspectives. Just the self-contained, what we would call theologically ontological trinity, the triune God who is beyond and transcends creation, calls all things into existence, makes the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian Bible, totally unique. The creation account is original and unique for another reason in that there is no previous literal antecedent revelation into which we could root figurative uh, meanings for Genesis. That is to say, when people talk about uh, the book of Genesis, for example, being just a poem or merely allegory, allegory of what? Because allegorical interpretations or figurative interpretations require something that precedes them in order for you to understand the figures. What comes before Genesis that we might understand uh, supposed figurative meanings? In fact, what you find in the Bible is that the creative act of God recorded in Genesis lays out the literal meaning for the rest of the Bible. And it's to Genesis that then later figures... Refer so Christ as the second Adam, for example. The other, the figures that we find in Scripture root themselves in the history of the book of Genesis. And so, what we find is that in the Christian worldview, creation and redemption stand in what we might call an absolute historical continuum together. They cannot be separated. You cannot deal with redemption separate from creation. You cannot deal with creation separate from God's purpose of redemption. And a proper understanding of God's revelation in creation involves a proper understanding of his word, which interprets the world. And so what I want to do to start with is talk a little bit about the significance of scripture for us as Christians as we think about these issues. Typically, the creation evolution discussion happens with uh, scientists Uh, talking about the immediate problems or issues, and they are important and significant in and of themselves, but I'm not a scientist. 
uh, as a theologian and as, a, as an apologist, I think the starting point has to be how we understand how God's word relates to God's world. Without the creative act and decree of God, there actually can be no science. There could be no unifying theory and no scientific knowledge would be possible. And you see, there really are only two ultimate views of the universe. Either you have a womb of chance out of which flow all the particulars of our experience in some sort of undifferentiated sea of chaos, which we then try and begin the task of trying to impose meaning on it, or we have the creative act and decree of God which governs all things and makes science and medicine possible. Now, in this uh, session this morning, part of what we're asking is what has God revealed in and through creation? Because Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 1 tell us that God has revealed a good deal through creation. And this is, I think, where critically the, uh, the problem we'll see this later on, of uh, attempts to meld two op- uh, opposing worldviews run into all manner of difficulties. The scriptures that we have read indicate that God has communicated real, specific knowledge about himself that is inescapable for man in the created order. So much so that Paul says human beings are without defense for not recognizing, honoring, and worshiping the God of Scripture. He says they are without excuse. There is absolutely no excuse, Scripture says, for men's rebellion against God and ignorance in this respect. So so clear, in fact, is this knowledge that Scripture tells us we sin against our better knowledge when we rebel against God in this regard. There is no place, the psalmist says, no language, there's no time in which their voice is not heard. Now, after the fall of man, which is a biblical doctrine, and of course the the idea of evolution presents incredible problems for the Christian doctrine of the fall if you attempt to meld the evolutionary paradigm with a biblical understanding of reality. The Christian position presupposes that man has fallen And as a fallen being, Paul tells us there in Romans 1 that he distorts God's truth. He suppresses the truth about God and the world uh, ethically in unrighteousness. So that the the key problem for man is not the great reach of his intellect. It is not his so-called science. It is his ethical hostility to God. That he holds down what is known about God in unrighteousness. And as a result, Scripture becomes a necessary, concrete form of special revelation. God speaks through creation, but what may be known about God is suppressed by man in his unrighteousness. So special revelation became absolutely necessary. The inscripturated Word of God as an ineradicable testimony to the truth. So God's revelation in creation is cannot be dealt with in isolation from God's revelation in scripture. That is to say, fallen man who is an ethical rebel against God cannot on the basis of his own reasoning and by his own independent ideas uh, discover or come up with a 
true system of truth independent of God's revelation, his word which interprets the world. And so in, in the Christian worldview now, general revelation in creation and special revelation are always involved in each other. In fact, if you think about it, even from the time of the creation of our first parents, Adam and Eve were not left to interpret reality simply in terms of the created order around them. God spoke to them. He communed with them. And because there was always thought communication from God, humanity has never actually in our uh, history ever been at a point where we were left purely with our surroundings to understand and the truth about reality. God's revelation in creation then, or what we might call general revelation, is totally clear and sufficient in terms of the purpose God has for it. By this revelation, men and women know, in a certain, to a certain degree, God. This is one of the paradoxes of the Bible. There's a sense in which men know God and a sense in which they don't know God. They don't know God in terms of relationship as father, but they do know him in terms of being creator and judge because their being and the created order around them testifies to it. Now, Scripture teaches us that all things exist by the sovereign word of God. Paul says to the evolutionary philosophers in Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 28, In him we live and move and exist. In him we live and move and have our being, as some translations render it. As a consequence, all of God's creation is revelational of the nature and will of God. All created reality reveals God and shows something of his glory, as we see in Psalm 19. What then does it tell us about God is one of the questions we're going to ask. So the special revelation of Scripture presupposes the clarity of God's revelation in creation. In other words, if you pick up a Bible and read it, without the clarity of, God, of what God has revealed of himself in creation, uh, the Bible really wouldn't make much sense to people. It's as we see, uh, as, as the testimony of general revelation is present to us, that the special revelation of Scripture makes sense of the world in which we live. It makes it intelligible. In creation, since the fall, there is uh, a further revelation of God in natural history. So we see something of the glory and power and attributes of God in creation. We recognize our moral accountability within ourselves as an aspect of creation. But since the fall, there's something else that's revealed in natural history, and that's the revelation of God's wrath against sin. In Romans 1, we're told that. Now, this was, of course, if you were there last night, I talked about Darwin's problem with the rationalistic theism that he was taught at Cambridge and which he grew up with as a Unitarian. So he didn't have a biblical theology. He didn't understand the Christian worldview. There's no evidence that he truly understood it. The world in the Christian perspective is a fallen order, and that also is revelatory of God, of God's wrath against sin, that the curse is manifest in creation. There is disease. That's why we need doctors. 
By the way, you're called doctors, let me remind you, if you didn't attend the uh, conferences I spoke at in Montreal and Edmonton, um, that term was given for teachers in the church. Greek uh, thought called doctors physicians. It was the Christian. It was the Christian world which changed the name of physicians, people who manipulated physics, to doctors, teachers about health. Which is very interesting. I digress. I mustn't do that, otherwise we will be here all day. Um, where am I? So. Disease, suffering, death, decay are also important as revelational about God's activity in history. They also speak about God now since the fall. They speak of God's wrath and judgment against sin. And so both prophecy and miracle in the Bible point to grace, the grace of redemption, and the restoration of the created order. So when Jesus comes, the great physician, as the Greeks there called him, The great physician comes, he heals the sick and the diseased as an indication of the destiny toward which creation is moving, which culminates for us as Christians in the resurrection of the body, total health, salvation, salve from the Latin means wholeness, healing, total health. So that is the connection between creation, fall, and redemption. Now let's consider in a bit more detail scripture and creation. God's revelation is integrated then for the created order and special revelation presuppose each other and are involved in each other and they therefore can't be uh, sharply distinguished. What's happening now in the fallen world is that man distorts the clarity of God's revelation in creation because, as I've said, his ethical hostility to God. And what creation now displays is not just the glory of God and the character of God, but also the need of redemption, the need for restoration, the need for healing, the need for renewal. Now, general revelation, that is the revelation in creation, carries authority for for its own purpose, carries significant authority. God's word and God's world, in that respect, do not contradict each other. Now, it's true that you don't get the message of the gospel from creation in the sense that nowhere does creation preach Christ. I mean, if creation preached Christ, we wouldn't have to, would we? In the sense that it doesn't declare the message of the cross uh, and forgiveness and so on. But creation does provide the context and the canvas for God's redemption in Jesus Christ. And you may be wondering the relevance of all of this to the creation evolution issue, but I can assure you that this is the absolute core of the issue. This is the core of the discussion. Creation reveals the fallen world, the character of God, the fallenness of human nature, and is therefore the canvas on which we understand the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. But because the creation reveals the God of Scripture, we should remember that it's no easier for sinful people to accept revelation general as it is the truth of scripture i think sometimes we think well 
You know, if we can make a good argument from creation, people will be much more willing to accept it because it's not special revelation in the Bible. But the biblical worldview tells us that the general revelation in creation is just as authoritative and is just as difficult to accept as biblical revelation, special revelation in the Word. What would, what would lead us to believe that people are going to be any more receptive to what God has declared in creation? Because Romans 1 says it's suppressed in unrighteousness. Men hold down the truth. They don't want to see what creation tells them. It's like Dawkins says, the biologist must continuously remind himself that what he is looking at is not designed. (laughs) You have to continuously remind yourself of this fact because it's holding down the truth. There's no no more desire in men to accept revelation in the natural world from God than he wants to receive revelation from the Bible. Now, such people may acknowledge the universe appears to have some kind of intelligence behind it. They may talk about an anthropic principle. They may look at the genetic code and think that it requires an intelligent code writer. But they won't embrace Jesus Christ because of it. They will do what people like, I mentioned last night, Thomas Nagel is doing in his book Mind and Cosmos and saying, while it's true the evolutionary cupboard is empty, it can't account for consciousness, that's obvious. So maybe what we need is a more uh, fuller and a more robust understanding of the cosmos as mind as well as material. That just as there's physical law, mind is somehow inherent in nature. And he actually confesses very interestingly, he he says he is... uh, hostile to the design hypothesis because it implies God. And he says it's an ungrounded assumption. He says he just doesn't like the idea. At least he's honest enough to say so. Now, he's happy with a God who isn't involved in the world. He doesn't mind the God of deism. He doesn't mind the God of Charles Darwin. A God who has nothing to do with creation, who is basically unknowable, really as good as no God. But not a God who intervenes, who creates, who governs, who's involved in history. Men will then invent another God. Aliens bringing life spores to earth. Or the universe itself to account for life and truth and reality. Because until the Holy Spirit reveals his blindness to him, he'll resist every suggestion of his accountability to God. That's the predicament of the human race. And so scripture is given in part to guide our interpretation of God's revelation in in creation and to correct our sinful distortions of it. Now, I'm going to get a tiny bit more philosophical for a moment and then we can all have a breather and come back to something a little bit more uh, simple. But I want us to think about uh, a few things here that are very important about knowledge. All nature is created and governed by God. That's the creation uh, theology that's basic to Christianity. All facts are governed by laws, and all laws are related to facts. And they both are what they are because of the personal God and his plan. You can't have facts apart from laws, and you can't have laws apart from facts. They'd be equally meaningless. I often say in my debates on the existence of God that without God, all people are really doing in the project of knowledge is they have a meaningless, chaotic sea of particulars out there, which we'll call the natural world. 
and then they have abstract ideas that exist in their brains. And then they go about the task of trying to relate the abstract ideas in their heads to the chaotic particulars out there. Now, how do you arrive at meaning on the basis of that? One of the best ways to illustrate this is um, the join the join the connect the dot puzzles that uh, children do. And one of the ways that uh, we learn to draw, children learn to draw, is uh, those connect the dot pictures sometimes have numbers with them, but often not. They're dots on a page. And as you connect the dots, as the child connects up the dots, a picture emerges. In other words, the author's intention emerges as connections are made that pre-exist. You discover the meaning that's already there. So the child discovers there is a meaning and they connect the dots and it's a house or it's a car or it's a giraffe or whatever. And they learn about drawing and shapes and so on. You discover meaning. Well, of course, in the atheistic worldview, in, the, in a worldview without God, those dots have no author. There's no design plan. There's no God. There's no pre-established relationship between the dots. The dots are our experience, the sea of particulars out there, the matter in motion. So when we come to the world as human beings, we do not discover meaning in such a universe. There is no meaning there. There is no relationship between the facts. All you do, all human philosophy has done outside of God is simply say, okay, well, here's as good a place to start as any. I'll do a giraffe here and we'll do a house over here and we'll have a car over here. And we invent a meaning. But our meanings are illusory and I may give the universe one meaning, I may draw my picture one way, but you've got every right to draw your picture the way you see fit. Your, your view is just as ultimate as mine. So man, in that sense, in he, when he tries to come to the world without God, he gives, he doesn't take. He establishes meanings, but he doesn't discover the truth. As such, we cannot naively separate religion and science, as I discussed last night. Now, it's common to hear Christians, if you can't separate fact and and law and meaning, then you can't remove God from the project of science and think you continue, continue rationally with the project of science. You can't separate the two. It's common to hear even Christians in responding to the so-called facts of science claim that science asks the questions what and how, whilst religion asks why. But this is preposterous. Philosophically, one cannot be asked without dealing with the other, because all science is conducted and even questions asked always from a worldview context. You cannot separate fact and meaning. And this is especially true regarding claims with respect to origins. Origins. So that even in Eden, our first parents were required to begin the study of the natural world in light of God's spoken word. Now the triune God of Scripture as the creator and sustainer and governor of all reality sets all the facts of our, our environment in relationship to each, to each other because he is the source of all fact and the source of all law and the source of all possibility. 
So the evolutionist wants a nature that has inherent properties and laws that exist independent, typically, of any God that may or may not exist. But in the Christian worldview, God is the source of all fact, he's the source of all law, and he's the source of all possibility. And as such, he must be self-attesting. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that God and his word cannot be corroborated by a source beyond himself unless that source is subject to interpretation within the Christian view of reality. Now, that sounds complicated, and that's because it is. Um, Simply put, when Moses asks for God's name at the burning bush, he gets an answer he wasn't expecting. I am that I am. I will be who I will be. In other words, what God was saying to Moses is, you cannot name me or define me because I am the source of all definition. You can't corroborate me to these people with something beyond me. When our first parents are set in the garden of God, what does Adam do? He names everything. He get, when you name something, you give it a definition. So if you name a disease as a doctor, you are limiting, you're, uh, you're putting a, uh, a limited scope on a particular set of symptoms. You say, this is that disease, and it gets a name. So you define it, you limit it. It's this, it's not that. Man named all the creatures, but he didn't name God. To name is to exercise authority over in that respect. It's to delimit. God cannot be named by us, and therefore he can't be established by us by something beyond or outside of himself. That is to say, when we talk about proving God, we need to be very careful, because how do you prove or establish that which is the beginning of all proof? How do you define that which is the source of all definition? So if I'm with somebody who says to me, well, how do you know Jesus is the Son of God and that God's the creator of the world? And I say, well, because of A. And they say, well, how do you know that's true? And I say, well, because of B. And they say, well, how do you know that's true? Well, because of C. And on and on we go until you have to get to the point where you say, because I said so. You have to reach a point of authority. Now, God is that point of authority because he knows the possibility and potentiality of all things. He creates all things. He governs all things. In him, all things hold together. So as the source of all definition, Jesus, without hesitation, when he was asked, on what authority are you doing these things? He said, are you greater? They said, are you greater than our father Abraham? What does Jesus say? Before Abraham existed, I am. He doesn't footnote anybody. He doesn't footnote Cicero. You don't find any footnotes in the Bible. God never references his authorities because he is the source of all authority. He's the source of all definition. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's correct. Our 
the the proof of the the Christian faith in this respect. This is why we need revelation from God. This is why the presupposition of the Christian worldview is that God alone self-identifies, identifies himself, and he speaks with an absolute authority. We cannot prove God directly. The proof of Christianity is indirect. That is, if this God is not who he declares himself to be in his revealed word and in creation, there is no proof of anything. So you either begin with your entire system as a Christian, or whoever you are as a non-believer, your entire system is dependent on where you start. If, you do not be- if we do not begin with God, we cannot conclude with God. If you begin with the self, I'll tell you where f- human philosophy has ended, with the self. It's exactly where it's ended today. If you say, I'm going to make myself the ultimate criterion for truth, that is where all knowledge ends. You cannot transcend yourself. The presupposition of the Christian worldview is that God creates, sustains, and governs all things, and it's only on this basis that we can understand reality in the world. So, no, I don't go about the project of trying to prove God on the basis of motion or classical arguments for the existence of God because they are all appealing to something that was somehow more basic or more ultimate than God. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yes. Yep. That's true. So God, who is uh, limitless and eternal, cannot be delimited by us. That's why God must always identify himself. You know, the popular parlance of contemporary culture that we're facing today, and you are facing in in the medical world, and I'm digressing now, but you forced me to, um, is uh, that um, people can self-identify. Right, the LGBTQ2SA, or whatever it is now, that people can self-identify. Well, the only person who self-identifies is God. God is the source of all definition. And that's why people think, well, I can reject the created order. Right? This is what they're saying, that creation itself can be turned on its head and that we no longer can speak simply of male and female that actually people can self-identify, and that might be as two-spirited or queer or questioning or whatever else, or whatever other uh, social constructions man is going to impose. This is where philosophy hits us socioculturally. If you don't have God as the source of all definition, who names every family in heaven and earth, and says, I created them male and female, and differentiates and distinguishes and identifies himself, then man will say he is the source of all definition. He'll redefine marriage. He'll redefine gender. He'll redefine sexuality. He will redefine everything as the new God. So central to a proper understanding of God's creation is recognizing the self-attesting authority and sufficiency of God's word. God's word isn't proved by something outside of God's word. God's word is self attesting. And if we deny the clarity of Scripture, we've actually already denied its authority. You know, there are people who suggest today, and it's done even in our churches, sadly, who say that we need experts in cosmology and genetics and ancient mythology and so forth if we can understand the Bible. Where does that leave you and I, or average Jill and Joe? If you need multiple experts, 
in numerous fields to supposedly understand the history of Scripture. That elitist mentality is common today and it denies that the word of God has been clearly given to men and all forms of neo-orthodoxy invariably deny this clarity and they make interpretation dependent on the wisdom and expertise of humanity. And they have very elaborate systems of uh, interpretation. But actually, the, the God's word presupposes that God's revelation in creation and in Scripture is clear. Jesus doesn't give us an excuse for not uh, following him uh, by making revelation so convoluted that unless you have a particular philosopher or cosmologist guiding you through it, that you're not going to be able to comprehend it. If Scripture is needed to rightly interpret God's revelation in creation, it must be clear and as self-attesting as creation. So scripture under the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is permitted to correct our sinful distortions. And this brings us right to the heart of the question, which is the question of authority. The basis upon which we understand God's revelation in creation. What is our source of authority going to be? Is it going to be scripture Or is it going to be something outside of Scripture? Now, what does the Bible tell us? Hebrews 11, verse 3 tells us this. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, often as educated believers, and as doctors, you're all educated, we tend to acknowledge, human beings tend to acknowledge, only an authority that they have established or that they have at least consented to. That's what's hard about the proclamation of the gospel. Because people will generally only want to accept an authority that they feel that they have established by their reason or that they have at least consented to. So if we then are challenged by God's word, we may react by calling the challenge fundamentalism, biblicism. There's all manner of insults flying around for people today who actually believe God's word. They're usually derogatory, they're usually pejorative. If we seek as believers to retain areas in our thinking where Jesus Christ is not Lord and we retain our own sense of ultimacy, the claims of Scripture with respect to what God has revealed concerning creation are going to be uncomfortable. They may even be offensive to us. To acknowledge the doctrine of creation that the writer of Hebrews speaks of involves accepting our creaturehood, our fallenness, and our need from an infallible word from God and a saviour and redeemer who has come not just to redeem our souls but our minds, our science, our philosophy, our intellectual pursuits. Christ is the redeemer of every aspect of life. And this is why an infallible word from God is necessary. Look, how does, how does science operate? What we call the empirical method operates on moving from particular instances of a thing to a general conclusion. I mean, this is how you work as a doctor, isn't it? Somebody comes into your surgery and presents certain uh, conditions. 
And from the presentation of those conditions, you work from the particulars to a general conclusion. But what you're doing isn't an exact science, is it? Have you ever got it wrong? Yeah? <laughs> Do you ever get it wrong? Do we ever get the diagnosis wrong when you move from some particular instances to a general conclusion that this is the disease? Of course we do, because we're fallible, we're human, and because we all the information isn't in, that is, we don't have an infinite knowledge, we don't control all the particulars, and therefore our knowledge is incredibly restricted and limited, there may be many other factors that we don't uh, appreciate or understand that mean our diagnosis is incorrect. So uh, I don't know enough about uh, medicine, but let's say you're, you know, you're dealing with some sort of foot fungus. You're not quite sure which one it is. Why well, is it this antibiotic? We use this antibiotic, which has been more effective, or this one. All it takes is one contrary instance. You say you might say, well, I think that this is the diagnosis. This is correct, and then a new piece of information comes to light, and boom, your diagnosis falls. So you think well, I have to revisit that do another test here, check this, ah, try this cream or whatever. Now, God doesn't work like that. God's word is not based on the inductive method. God, who knows all the particulars, for whom all the information is in, whose knowledge is infinite, doesn't make mistakes. This is why God's word, by definition, must be infallible. If the God uh, that Scripture speaks of exists, his word is infallible. He doesn't make a misdiagnosis because he's not short of any relevant information because he not only governs all the facts, he governs the potentiality of all creation. He knows it all. So many Christians are happy with an ethical, moral savior as they perceived it, as long as he doesn't encroach on my learning. As long as God's word doesn't encroach on my patch, and I see this all of the time with philosophers in particular. Well, I'm an expert in this area. Well, is it possible, if we ask ourselves the question, is it possible that we might be wrong about what we think we know? This is why revelation from God is central to the project of human knowledge because only God knows all things and is not restrictive to the inductive method. Thus, Christ is the redeemer of every aspect of our lives, including medicine. So this is the doctrine of infallibility as it relates to God's revelation. And as it relates to the revelation in creation, it requires God's complete control of history and the created author. Uh, created order. If he does not govern, he could not speak an infallible word. Have you ever asked yourself how God can prophesy in Scripture? How is it that God is able to say, this is going to happen, this king will rise, this king will fall, this empire will do this, this empire will do that, this person will arise, this person's going to be born? How does he do that? God prophesies because he governs in his providence all things. And God and Jesus says his word cannot be broken. Jesus defends his own divinity on the basis of the authority of God's word, which he says cannot be broken. Thus, God himself in his word 
must be our ultimate criteria for truth and the final point of reference, not the theories of men which are tossed aside generation by generation as more information comes to light. Authority cannot lie in the delusion of human autonomy that seeks to verify and corroborate the claims of God on independent grounds. Jesus didn't allow people to do that. He says, I speak on my Father's authority. If that were possible, then there is an independent criterion for truth above or beyond God himself. So we either then think and reason in every area of life on the presupposition of the authority of God and his word, or we have the mind of man as self-interpreting, knowing full well that not man but God alone is self-explanatory and who speaks on his own authority. Let me put it to you in the words of the, my favorite Christian philosopher, Cornelius Van Til. He says this, listen closely. He says, the only alternative, part of the, um, before I, uh, I talk about what he says here, part of the issue is people will say, well, isn't this circular reasoning? But all reasoning is circular. The question is, is it a flat circle? Does the, can the circle sustain itself? If you begin with yourself, you end with yourself. That's a circle. You begin with God, you end with God. But beginning with God leads us to meaning and truth. This is what Van Til says. The only alternative to thir- circular reasoning as engaged in by Christians, no matter on what point they speak, is that of reasoning on the basis of isolated facts and isolated minds, with the result that there is no possibility of reasoning at all. Unless, as sinners, we have an absolutely inspired Bible, we have no absolute God interpreting reality for us. And unless we have an absolute God interpreting reality for us, there is no true interpretation at all. He goes on to say, there can be only one final reference point in predication. If man is taken to be his final reference point, his environment becomes dependent upon him. And any other personality that may exist is not more ultimate than he. Therefore, there is no God on whom he can feel himself dependent. He is is his own God. And of course, that is the first temptation. So no system of thought or theology is actually possible without a full and final revelation from God. And this is what is offensive to those who reject God's revelation. This is why the philosophers, with all their pomp and circumstance will credit a God who is uninvolved in creation, but not one who speaks with full and final authority. And this is what is offensive about creation. It's It's what's offensive about the miracles of Scripture to so many. It's an offense to man's moral and intellectual autonomy and his sense of his right to be as God. Now, moving swiftly on, are you all bored to death or can I go on for a few more minutes? Okay, thank you. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, we are told this. We're told, God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a man that he should lie. God's revelation in creation declares that man is not alone in an uncharted cosmos of pure possibility, but we inhabit this realm created by God who is all truth. Now, the evolutionist universe is, on the contrary, a world of lies. 
In fact, though the faith of the evolutionist just assumes rather than justifies the reality of truth, despite this foundation in chaos that the evolutionist posits, it is clear that one could just as easily assume that all reality is deception. Last night I pointed out uh, what, Darwin, what has been noted called Darwin's doubt. Darwin's doubt. Where Darwin himself uh, reflected on the problem of human knowing and human knowledge. He said, if we have arisen from irrational brutes, from pre-hominids, he says... Would anybody trust what is in a monkey's brain if there was anything in such a brain? He says, now if this is the case, if, I'm, if we have arisen, if our faculties have arisen from irrational brutes, what gives me any basis to believe, to trust any of the deliverances of my mind? He called it his horrid doubt that always arises. The universe then could just be deception on this basis. The evolutionist does assume order in the created realm and a schema of truth, which he ignores his worldview cannot legitimize. A truly consistent Darwinian has no objective standard or criterion for judgment, and the possibility of predication that's naming, defining, differentiating is destroyed since all is a product of ultimate Flux. He doesn't have a criterion, a basis for rational judgment. In fact, most of the philosophers of science now in this field will speak of pure determinism. They don't believe in free choice. They increasingly believe in atomic and uh, genetic determinism in every area. To surrender the integrated revelation of God in the world and in his word, then at any point by implication surrenders the whole and replaces it with another faith. And so I want to suggest to you, we cannot play fast and loose with God's word, whether it's in the interest of our pride, or academic respectability, or appeasing others, because he who would have academic respectability in the eyes of man must often compromise the lordship of Christ today. Paul teaches us that we must, he says, become a fool that we may become wise. In Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus affirms every jot and tittle of the law. That's every punctuation mark of the law. He says, till heaven and earth pass away. That's the books of Moses. And he's emphatic in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, if you'd have believed Moses, you would have believed me. But since you don't believe what Moses says, how will you believe what I say? And many Christians need to be reminded about that as they think about God and creation. Now, coming down in conclusion here to the issue of act and process, let's just talk a bit more now about the evolutionary issue. The book of Genesis teaches us, then, if we accept that authority, as I've been trying to establish the necessity of doing, teaches us about God's creative act. An act that is inherently revelational of who God is in the Christian worldview. There is a finished creation God completes his creation. He finishes it. And in the evolutionary paradigm, act is replaced by process. And this is true, actually, it's been true of all pagan views of history. The scriptures do not ascribe creativity to the process of being or the inner powers of nature. And actually, to the extent that this is done, our thinking has 
transferred creative power actually from God to nature, which is a personification. If nature has developed from the simple to the complex in a long, crude process, then it contains within itself laws of being. And increasingly what happens is, as we saw if you were there last night, as in 19th century philosophy, God increasingly becomes an outsider who might inspire nature, but who is increasingly identified with the process and is conditioned by it. He can't be distinguished from the process. We confuse act and process, and then we confuse transcendence and imminence, and process gets put above act. So the act of God disappears into this process. And then how the process is conceived then then, uh, determines how murky uh, the being of God is in people's understanding. Either creativity rests ultimately in God or inherent processes in nature. Now let me remind you at this point that the Christian view of law and uh, and hence the Christian supernaturalist worldview is not that God wound up a watch at the beginning of time, with inherent laws, and then just flicked it into the ether and let it get on with itself for the rest of history. That's not the biblical view of reality. Our conception, the Christian conception of law, is that this is God's regular way of working. He holds all things together by the word of his power. And that miracles are God doing something other than his ordinary way of working. Uh, Let me perhaps at this point give another illustration. When we look at the boundaries of time and we think about creation and the end of all things, we have the meeting of transcendence and imminence where it's very difficult for us to know. In fact, we can't know what processes were in operation when God created all things because the universe at that time wasn't operating in terms of what we now, how God now operates in sustaining. He's not creating in sustaining the world and all things. Now, when Christ comes again and we're transformed in the twinkling of an eye and there's a new heavens and a new earth, are you going to be able to describe that in terms of existing laws of nature? We can no more account for that than we can account for the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus or the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What laws could we identify that would account for the resurrection of Jesus or any of the miracles of Christ. No, God there is doing something other than his ordinary way of working. This is not a mechanistic universe. Actually, one of the reasons there's such a fascination with alternative medicine today is that because most of contemporary medicine bought into the stunning successes of uh, uh, the Enlightenment project, which was to say there has to be law, pattern, order, structure, which requires God, of course. Uh, We've tended to be reductionistic in our medicine. And the solution, many people think, and that's what they expect of you increasingly when they come to your surgery, is a chemical solution to every problem, even if they're not very happy. Give me a biochemical solution to every problem problem, a physical solution to every problem. There's an increasing fascination with alternative medicine that may not be uh, uh, empirically supported, but it's partly because we don't have a fully developed Christian understanding today of medicine. Uh, Work needs to be done there because we are more than some of our parts, aren't we? It's not just 
physical processes. I mean, if we reduce mind and thought to physical processes, then there is actually no such thing as mind. There is only brain. There's the chemical event of your brain and there's the chemical event of my brain. Then you can't actually have rationality on that basis, can you? Because none of your thoughts are the product of logic and truth and principles of rationality that are immaterial. They are, my thoughts are just complex offspring of physical processes. So, what was I saying that for? Oh yes, act and process. Uh, the, the, God's work of creation is a finished work. And now he sustains all things. And of course, he is going to recreate all things. Now, if we give priority to process regarding God's revelation in history, which all ev- forms of evolutionism must, there are serious consequences. First of all, it leads to a double rather than integrated view of revelation. This idea separates truth into different domains. So people will say spiritual truths about God are found in the Bible. And then there's another revelation, uh, science, for the order of creation. And central to this idea comes from actually scholastic and Greek philosophy. uh, uh, Posits the idea that reason, that a reason of the fallen would-be autonomous man is capable, capable of objectively investigating the facts of creation and constructing a theology of nature irrespective of what God says in Scripture. And that he's going to do that without any uh, uh, distortion of his view because of sin. Do sinful men and women want to find God, the God of the Bible? The Bible says, no, they don't. There's none who seeks after God, no, not one. Now, they're interested in any and almost any other manner of, uh, concept of spirituality. They'll be Buddhist, which is atheism. They'll be Hindu, which is atheism. They'll be deistic, which is modified atheism. But not the God of Scripture. Paul clearly teaches that man's mind is darkened. He's exchanged the truth for a lie. He's worshipping the created rather than the creator. He teaches time and again that man's, man's wisdom is folly and that God's truth is distorted by man. In fact, Jesus says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And in John 8, he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And how did Jesus defend himself even against the temptation of Satan? Did he say, you know, well, listen, I've reflected on this and I've meditated on that. And if you observe this and if you, if you look at the science behind this, he says, it is written. And he cites the book of Deuteronomy. Now, in this popular double revelation view, the Bible is restricted to speaking about God and this spiritual order, whatever that means. A province which is beyond the world of sensation a word of faith, a world of faith, and faith on this basis becomes an irrational, super-rational leap, commitment, beyond history and beyond scientific support. So the scientists will say, oh yeah, you can have your God. It's okay if you, you can have your leap of faith, because we don't really know what's beyond, if there is anything beyond nature. So if you want to leap over there in your irrational leap, 
Well, that's faith. And maybe you find spiritual revelation about this in your Bible. And you get to know you can develop a spirituality. Kant was, uh, Manuel Kant, the philosopher, was perfectly happy with that. He called it his noumenal realm. Reason and science, on the other hand, are said to rule in their domain the phenomenal world, irrespective of what Scripture says. And here, reason or science are said to overrule the Bible as myth, as culturally bound ignorance, and so on. And this leads, when consistently applied to a denial of creation, the historical fall of man, the curse upon the created order, Noah's flood, Christ as the second Adam, In fact, every historical act of God in history is left open to attack at that point. The New Testament acts, uh, the New Testament acts of God in history, um, uh, most Christians will accept. But it's remarkably inconsistent for us to accept those and not to accept the ones we find in the Old Covenant. It begins with the God's act of creation special creation. Why would we accept Jesus raising a little girl from the dead, turning water into wine, walking on water, that you can't account for in terms of current operations in nature, and uh, accept those and yet reject creation? The Creation Week is then a very important case in point, where these events are on the horizon of the transcendent and the imminent, and we are confronted with mystery. By faith, we believe that the, heaven, that the worlds were created by the word of God, so that, that which is seen is not made out of things which are visible. There aren't then two sets of infallible truth, man's science and the Bible. We must take the premises of Scripture and use the principles and premises given to us in Scripture to be responsible as we do science. Don't forget, Adam was the first scientist. He identified, classified all creatures that were named and differentiated and defined by God, and he went about the scientific task. It seems clear then that God's revelation leaves people with two choices. There's the creative act of God, a totally self-conscious God, the all-knowing, all-powerful God, to whom man is inescapably responsible, who creates all things, or there is one permutation of process and evolutionism on the other. And some of the important questions here are, how could a process like that in which God becomes unidentifiable, how do we know what sin is? How do we know what sin is? How do we know what redemption is? If there was no finished act, a perfect creation, a good creation that fell through rebellion into death and disease and suffering and alienation, if there is no fall, then what is the purpose of the gospel? What is sin? Who can say what the origin of sin is? Actually, you have to put it in the nature of God. If you try and harmonize an evolutionary account of reality, you have to say that all this mutation and death and cruelty and waste over eons and eons of time is part of God's character and nature. On this view, God is the instrumental cause of all of those things. So we break the causal link that Scripture makes 
between sin and death and salvation and redemption then becomes a nonsensical story. Let me cite for you uh, the atheist um, G. Bozarth who says this, Christianity has fought, still fights and will continue to fight science to the desperate end over evolution because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve and the original sin, and in the rubble you find the sorry remains of the Son of God. If Jesus was not the Redeemer buying us back from sin and death, who died for our sins, and this is what evolution means, he says, then Christianity is nothing. There's a couple of compatibilists I was reading uh, about uh, just this week. Carl Gibson, in his book, uh, Saving Darwin, He rejects the idea that sin originates with the free act of humans. And he asserts, essentially, that sin was there in human beings to begin with. This is what he says. Selfishness drives the evolutionary process. Unselfish creatures died, and their unselfish genes perished with them. Selfish creatures, this man purports to be a Christian, Selfish creatures who attended to their own needs for food, power, and sex flourished and passed on these genes to their offspring. After many generations, selfishness was so fully programmed in our genomes that it was a significant part of what we now call human nature. And uh, one other, Ron Numbers from the University of Wisconsin, who by his own admission abandoned Christianity because of Darwinism. He says this, we humans were perfect because we were, uh, he, said, he, said, he says, according to Christianity, we humans were perfect because we were created in the image of God. And then there was a fall. Death appears and the whole account in the Bible becomes one of deterioration and degeneration. So we then have Jesus in the New Testament who promises redemption. Evolution completely flips that. With evolution, you don't start out with anything perfect. There's no perfect state from which to fall. This makes the whole plan of salvation silly because there never was any fall. So the sin-death-creation paradigm becomes critically important. A hybrid position that tries to reconcile these views to maintain this dialectic, to bring these two philosophies together, these warring concepts tends to collapse or prioritize one over the other. It was Daniel Dennett who called Darwinism a universal acid that then affects absolutely everything. God's sovereign word governing all things from the biblical perspective means that man is meaningfully accountable to God and lives in a personal environment, not the impersonal laws of nature. You can't be accountable to an impersonal process. Our ultimate uh, frame of reference then in Scripture is transcendent, where God is not identified with his creation as though God is part of mixed up in the process, but he stands above it even though he holds all things together in it. Now let me conclude now by um, just highlighting a few of the problems on this basis that we have with the compatibilist models, and then we can have questions and discussion. Here's one. Evolution, even conceived in its theistic uh, formulation, makes us ultimately in the image of beasts. We emerge from them. 
There's a common ancestor for everything. And we become really the image of beasts. Like the, creation, like the creation, actually, and not the creator. And this is why there is God begins again in the creation account. Bara, he begins afresh when he creates man. There's a specific way in which God, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say let there be. Man is made specifically and particularly as then is Eve, which, by the way, gives us the foundation of the doctrine of marriage, the church, and numerous other Christian doctrines. If you lose this, of course, you can have gender fluidity. There are no real absolute distinctions. Man then worships process, nature, and actually himself, not the living God, which is idolatry. I think that's a significant problem. Secondly, we have the irrationality of positing a process that resists the plan and will of God. So God's plan and will is to create human beings. In his image, you will love and serve him. I cannot understand the rationality involved of then planning a process that at every stage resists that end of the creation of human beings. Because that is, of course, the evolutionary story that through endless mistake-ridden process of mutation and disease finally emerges out of all of this a self-conscious human being. So at every step, there's resistance to the purpose of God. Since God could accomplish it by fiat, without a cruel and wasteful process, as he is going to accomplish our transfiguration by fiat. The appeal, again, in terms of even our thinking, is downward to a sub-rational inferior to justify or validate the rational superior. As I said to the young people last night, nobody asks their dog to correct their homework. How do we justify or establish human rationality by appealing to the sub-rational? It makes everything subservient to the evolutionary paradigm. Eventually, in fact, I was at a conference in California just uh, this week in which uh, the, the latest development in evolutionary thinking, some of you may have been done some reading about this, is called transhumanism, posthumanism. Has anybody heard these terms now? The idea here is that, and there are numerous uh, universities across the world, as well as over 300 corporations helping to fund these projects in, in, in AI, artificial intelligence, human enhancement, where the, the evolutionists are saying that the process uh, with respect to man's evolution has reached an end point, that we are now uh, in uh, a state of genetic entropy, that is, the mutations have been building up in our, in our genomes, and we're not actually getting healthier in that sense. Uh, now, of course, with modern medicine and clean water and so on, we may have extended life uh, expectancy, but actually that genetic disease, uh, genetic entropy with the buildup of mistakes in our genes, that they say human evolution has reached this uh, equilibrium, this point where we, uh, which seems contradictory. But what they say is, no, hang on. The universe, nature, is now self-conscious in man because we can think and reason. So we can, like the eugenicists thought of the, in the 20th century, govern now the process of evolution. And they say the next step in human evolution is that we merge with our own technology so that we are not simply concerned with therapeutic technologies, like an artificial limb to help somebody who's lost an arm, 
but rather with human enhancement and the merging of our minds with our machines. Now, they, they absolutely believe this with a religious fervor and devotion. It's called transhumanism. You can go and look it up. Go and Google it if you dare, uh, because Google's a very big part of funding all of this. They, in fact, they have acquired six um, uh, research uh, organizations of late for the, the uh, artificial intelligence. They've got all the resources of Google behind them. And what they ultimately believe is that we'll be hooked up uh, cybernetically to the Internet within a generation without any need for physical equipment. You'll have a, a chip in your head. There'll be various drugs will be used to modify human behavior. And they believe ultimately man will be able to download his consciousness into a sh- machine and live as an avatar. And that he will be a god. That man will beat death. This, and this is, of course, absolutely logical in the evolutionary worldview. It's completely logical. And it's logical in terms of scripture because man's basic desire and temptation is to be as God and to acquire for himself the attributes of God. And they believe this with a passion and we're seeing this in, and it of course crosses over into the uh, medical uh, arena. What's going to happen is that where is the boundary line between enhancement and therapy and so forth? So... It subsumes, evolution as an idea of process subsumes everything in its wake. Now, theistic Darwinism today denies that the process appears designed. So people like Francis Collins in The Language of God are not even bothering to argue anymore, as earlier theistic evolutionists did, that will make God just used evolution and, you know, there must be some sort of intelligent target involved there and we can still maybe detect design. No, they deny that now. They say, no, Darwinism presupposes randomness. We can't detect design. Any work of God is hidden. Well, what does that do for the theology of Psalm 19 and Romans 1? If you can actually look at the world and at genes and at physics and say there is no detectable design why would we ever expect people to accept the idea that the god of all creation stands behind all things they call themselves theistic darwinists now they think this is much more logical god is entirely hidden it all looks like chance evolution then becomes a practically all or nothing picture of reality It's cosmic, chemical, biological, historical, psychological. It invades every single area of thought as it has done. And it shatters the sin, death, redemption paradigm. The origin of sin becomes unknown. Adam ceases to be the first man. Jesus is not the second Adam. Death is not the last enemy, as the Bible says. In fact, the creative engine of life in evolution is death. You can't have new life and development and forward movement in history without the engine of death. Death is not the enemy. It's the most creative friend the human race has ever had in the evolutionary worldview. That's why they're all for population control and eliminating 70% of the population. Humans are a virus on the planet, etc., etc. Because ultimately death becomes the engine by which man accomplishes life. And God is made a liar in Scripture. Furthermore, value judgments are undermined. I said again last night to the young people, if B evolves from A, from a common ancestor, 
we can carry on divisions at a differentiation at a surface level and say that A is different from B, but we cannot say one is better, one is superior. How do you make value judgments in such a world? That's why Peter Singer, chair of bioethics at Princeton, believes that infanticide should be standard practice, that a pig or a dog has more uh, cognitive value than a newborn infant, and that drowning children is no different from drowning puppies. The word of God, uh, sorry, um, word uh, from a God of process, uh, an infallible word from a God of process can't be identified because in the, uh, in the theistic evolutionary paradigm, God is identified with the process. He's co-relative to the world. God, for many of these thinkers now, doesn't know the outcome. He's a better expert than you because he's got more exposure to the data. But he does, because he doesn't govern and control all of creation... Uh, and he's co-relative to the process, not over it, well, God doesn't know what's going to happen either. In fact, there are evangelical transhumanists today who say our transfiguration is going to be our merging with our technology. That's how God's going to do it. So you had Teilhard de Chardin, the, uh, the Roman Catholic uh, theistic evolutionist, who sort of said, well, the age of Aquarius will be th- this Jesus was taking us on forward in evolution, and we will suddenly arrive at that new point through evolution. Now, there are some Christians who are even saying that our transfiguration is our merging with our technology, that this is how we will acquire eternal life. And finally, we have lost the key for finding God. Heaven and earth do not declare the glory of God. They do not testify to his power. The body is not a body of death. You know, St. Paul in Romans 7 says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? No, the body become, is not no longer that which has been corrupted and fallen from which we need deliverance and renewal and restoration. It becomes uh, the very character and nature of God becomes complicit in the cruelty and waste. And as a consequence, uh, is, uh, is a part of God's nature. And our restoration, renewal, and healing in the new creation, I think the atheists have seen something very important here in those citations that I offered. That in the rubble, you would find the remains of the Son of God of the Christian paradigm. So, I believe in summation that the Scripture gives us an infallible revelation from God that we need to interpret His creation. Both testify of God. Scripture's history is true. Jesus founded the defense of His own divinity upon it. And that as we pursue every uh, sphere of intellectual life, whether it be in science or medicine, we must do so on the presupposition of the authority of God's word. And if not, all that will happen is, as is already happening now, a new paradigm will replace the one that we have cooperated with and tried to amalgamate with our understanding of the Bible. The the next scientific paradigm will then replace that one, and we will forever, as Christians do so often, chase their tails around, trying to find intellectual acceptability in a world that is not trying to find God, is not seeking to obey him or surrender themselves to him. And actually, if we look at the history of science and history of medicine, which is a completely different discussion, we see that actually it's been through the Christian worldview that we've been able to make the progress that we have, not uh, a view of reality and life that has posited an ultimate flux and chaos at the foundation of reality. So I've spoken for just over an hour 
Um, maybe a bit longer than that. I wasn't timing it. Let me see exactly how long I was so that I don't lie. I was an hour and 18 minutes. Okay. So, but I did have some questions in the middle. So, um, I don't know whether, Ted, do you want to uh, um, moderate or... Uh, any, any questions, thoughts, comments, uh, reflections... Um, That's right. That's right. The, it, it, the presupposition of God there becomes uh, necessary to trust our belief-forming processes. Bible. Yeah. Okay, to the first question, um, there is actually now a, uh, the, the, the sort of human brain project that you're talking about. There is now a, uh, a vast array of companies that are seeking to build a supercomputer brain. Uh, and, um, you know, you've probably heard about in the, in the press uh, about, you know, different computers beating the chess champions and so forth. Well, the there is a ton of money uh, going into the construction of an artificial brain. And some of these things are, are um, uh, you know, as you look at the nature of the surveillance state today and the way in which privacy is being diminished and the way in which technology uh, is starting to not only make us idle but inform every aspect of our lives. So Google not only is looking at their Google glasses with, you know, visual computer here, but being able to install sensors and microphones into, into people's homes. So they'll just be able to, you'll be able to, you know, come in from work, turn the lights on, give me today's news. Where, um, I want to go out for Chinese. Uh, uh, where's the best Chinese restaurant within five miles? Uh, a question, or ask the computer, a que- you know, like in Star Trek, where they say, you know, Poo-doo, computer, and they ask a question of the computer. And there's this super computer, uh, an artificial brain. Um, these are... Uh, both scary and dangerous in terms of the, the premise of human freedom. In fact, some of the leading transhumanists have said, and actually I was speaking to James Herrick, who's an expert in this area, who was speaking in California last week, who was at a conference at Harvard on, on transhumanism. And uh, the, uh, one of the um, spokespersons there for transhumanism said, there will, be, there will be blood in the streets before people accept this uh, vision of reality says that we're looking at, but it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. The constraints that they will be required upon human freedom 
and human and, uh, and privacy to establish their vision. Of their, their vision is ultimately of man um, merging into a one. I mean, I don't want to now get onto another lecture, which is the whole idea that is fundamentally evolutionary paganism, uh, that we either have a oneist or a twoist view of reality. There is either creator God and the creation, that's two, or nature is all there is. Man being part of nature is, a, is the self-conscious aspect of God. He's fragmented and he needs to be unified. And the way to unify him is going to be, is going to be create a global consciousness through technology. And uh, that will require coercion, of course, and um, the people will resist it. So th- th- this is a dystopian nightmare that we're talking about here. With these, and, and I do agree with you that this is going to involve then playing around with the brain um, and uh, efforts to manipulate uh, um, human um, psychology and human mental life. To the second question, um, with respect to the, 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 the meaning of the word yom, yes, I do have uh, uh, something I can say on that. Um, the word is used, of course, in Exodus 20. People often forget that the Bible doesn't just say that God created the world in six days in Genesis. He says it in Exodus, and he writes it with his own finger. The fourth commandment. You shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For the Lord your God made heaven and earth in six days. And on the seventh, he rested. Now, God wrote that, according to scripture, with his own finger. And the word yom there is used. And clearly, it has the meaning of the word day. Now, the eminent Hebrew scholar, Dr. James Barr, professor at Oxford University who rejected supernatural Christianity, uh, he wrote in response to a question from an evangelical scholar, uh, David, uh, Dr. David Watson, I think it was, when he was asked about the, the early chapters of Genesis. This is one of the world's leading Hebrew scholars at Oxford. He's no longer there, but uh, in fact, I think he may be dead now. He says this, So far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writer or writers of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to their readers the ideas that A, creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of the the 24 hours we now experience. B, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition, a chronology from the beginning of the world up to the latter stages of the biblical story. And C, Noah's flood was understood to be, a world, to be worldwide and to have extinguished all human and land animal life except for those in the ark. Or to put it negatively, the apologetic arguments which suppose the days of creation to be long eras of time, the figures of, the figures of years not to be chronological and the flood to be a merely local Mesopotamian flood are not taken seriously by any professor as far as I know. So the source of most of the uh, uh, questions about the historicity of Genesis and whether there are various different models that uh, we can apply there don't actually come from secular Hebrew scholars. They come from Christian apologists looking for a way to harmonize Genesis with prevailing views in the sciences in general. Now, I'm not saying that that's a hill I would die on. Uh, I'm gonna, uh, in terms of the age of the earth or you know whether the Yom in... Uh, the the book of Genesis in that context for 100% certainty meant exactly the same as it did in Genesis 20. I believe that to be the case, but I'm not going to go to the stake over that. I'm going to go to the... I would uh, 
uh, nail my colors absolutely to the mast on the divinity of Christ, the historicity of Genesis. Um, you know, I'm not inf- an infallible interpreter of Scripture. But in terms of the weight of Hebrew scholarship, there's no question that, uh, in fact, some have gone as far as to say that if uh, Yom in Genesis does not mean day as we understand it, the interpretation of Scripture is hopeless. Now, I think in terms of, because we don't have a thoroughly established cosmology, um, again, this is a slight digression, but I think an interesting one, it's quite conceivable um, in mathematics today that various theorists in, in white hole theory in Europe, and there's a, uh, a scientist called Dr. Russell Humphreys you know, who wrote a book called Space and Time, in which uh, if matter has a center in the universe, that is, uh, if the Big Bang cosmology is not correct, and I don't think it is, uh, if the universe is something and not nothing, imagine the universe is expanding, being blown up like a big beach ball, right? And then you took a marble and you push that marble down into the center of the beach ball like this. And so that the, uh, the, our uh, solar system sits in a gravity well. Now, you've probably heard of the idea of light shift, red shift, so that light is bent in space. Well, we know that gravity affects time. So that if you take the atomic clock and you run it in a valley and then you take it to the top of Mount Everest, it will run at a very, very slightly different rate just, be- just because of the difference in the, the effect of gravity. Now, if you could multiply that by the size of the universe, it's actually conceivable that you could have millions of years of processes happening on the edge of the universe while only days pass in the gravity well. So that they call it time dilation. Right? Now, that's just theoretical physics. I don't, I'm not a physicist. I don't know whether it's true. I'm not a mathematician. What I'm saying is that our understanding of the space-time world is so limited and of cosmology is so very limited that uh, you know, when people ask questions about starlight getting to the Earth and all those kind of things, there are mathematical models which could allow you to have days passing on our planet while millions of years pass on the edge of the universe. So, and don't forget, when God called all things into existence, he wasn't using what we call the current laws of physics. I mean, even the Big Bang theorists say, what do they say? They say, all known laws of physics break down at the quantum singularity. In other words, we don't know what happened at the beginning. There weren't, the, the laws that we know were not in operation. That's what they're saying. So, uh, I think that we need to be more concerned about with what the clear reading of scripture is and allow those principles to guide then our theorizing about, the, about creation rather than the other way around so that we end up, and as we have done, chasing the latest scientific paradigm through history. <laughs> you know, let's not forget, you know, right up until the, time of, um, until the time of Darwin, you look at the evangelical awakening, look at the Reformation, people didn't question the biblical history and plot line. They didn't question it. Uh, that was assumed that this was God's revelation. And science, the, the work of interpretation was done in terms of the biblical plot line, even in terms of geology. It changed with the uniformitarianism of Lyell and other uh, geologists in the 19th century, and then emphatically with Darwin. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.